Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Today we're going to talk about the rare intersection between my two passions, two very important passions of mine. One, obviously, is my work, and the other one is my politics, or more accurately, I suppose, my world interests. I don't know necessarily my politics, but my world interests. And what makes this work that I do so fantastic for me sometimes is that occasionally these two passions do intersect. It's happened a couple of times lately. I represent James O'Keefe of Project Veritas, a a news organization that does undercover work, and I truly believe in it. But I think it's a result of decades of working hard and doing good work that I get this opportunity. The harder you work, the more you can accomplish as an attorney through real work. I'm not talking about the fake self-promotion that everybody wants to do today. It's when you do the work and you do it well and you do it hard, it allows you to feel confident enough that you can be more out there with your worldviews and you can marry your two passions, which is your work with what you feel and what you think, your worldview. And the fates have a long way towards going to paying you back if you don't cheat this profession. The fates will get you. They look out for you if your motive is pure. They do. If you get too big with your ego, if you fly too close to the sun, you get slapped back every time. It happens every single time. If you're humble with the work, if you're willing to sacrifice yourself for the work, If you're willing to do the hard work that needs to be done to become successful and don't cut corners, don't do it half-assed, when no one's looking, when no one's watching, when you're not on Instagram trying to show everybody, pretend how hard you work, when no one is working, are you doing the work that needs to get done that no one's ever going to see? They're just going to see the finished product that looks so easily accomplished, they don't realize how many hundreds of hours, thousands that go into it to make it look so easy, because it's not. If you believe in what you're doing and you do it for the right reasons, the fates will reward you. And sometimes you even get an extra reward. And I want to talk about a case of mine that was in the news just this past week. I represent an Iranian-born American woman who pled guilty to violating American economic sanctions against Iran by sending money to a private investigator who was hired by the Iranian terror regime to track down an Iranian dissident in Brooklyn. That's a critic, someone who escaped Iran, and now she's just lobbing bombs from the outside, from the safety, or so she thought, of America, of her new home. And this dissident in this case is perhaps the most well-known critic of the Iranian terror regime, this activist, probably the most well-known dissident who lives outside of Iran today, a woman named Masi Alinejad who lives in Brooklyn. And let me repeat that slowly. The woman that I represent was indicted along with four Iranian operatives, four Iranians who live in Iran that are Iran and are part of its terror government. The four operatives were indicted for conspiring to kidnap this Brooklyn woman and take her back to Iran, where she surely would have been imprisoned and most likely executed. 
My client, again, was not charged with conspiring to kidnap the Brooklyn activist, Masi. She is not alleged to have known that she was even assisting in such a plot. The government has seen every text message, every email between the parties, and there is no evidence that my client was aware of any kidnapping plot, which makes total sense. She worked at a perfume counter in L.A. She fled Iran to get away from the terror regime, but she also knew people back in Iran that she had known her whole life. Had she known what the others were trying to do, she would never have been involved, and the evidence is clear. If the government could have charged her, they would have, but there was simply no evidence. It was obvious that she was kept in the dark. But as she's the only one of the five defendants who live outside of Iran, she was the only one who was arrested, taken into custody, and brought to justice here. So naturally, she's the one who's catching all the hell, all the heat from uh, Iranian expatriates. She's the only one, as I said, that was arrested, the only one that can actually be blamed who's physically here. Now, the four Iranians from Iran who worked in Iran as intelligence officers, they hired a private investigator in New York who was paid, also unwittingly by my client, to get pictures of Ms. Alinejad, video to find out who else lived with her in the house, take pictures of the house. They contacted the private investigator and lied, saying they were searching for someone who owed someone a financial debt. It was a lie. This was only after these men, these Iranian terror leaders, tried to convince Ms. Alinejad, her relatives in Iran, to invite her back to Iran, where they surely would have grabbed her and imprisoned her and killed her. But the relatives refused to do it. But not only did they try to convince her relatives to lure her back to Iran. Once that failed, they then hired a private investigator and they did research online for a service offering military-style speedboats for evacuating by sea, by the ocean, out of New York City and travel by ocean from New York to Venezuela, a country whose government, as we all know, or you should know, has friendly relations with Iran and not friendly with America. The leader of the four Iranian men researched travel routes from Ms. Alinejad's Brooklyn home to a waterfront neighborhood in Brooklyn, which is where the boat would have been, and directions on how to get her from there to Venezuela by boat. These same four Iranians have targeted victims in other countries. This is what the evidence shows. It's in the indictment. They've targeted victims in other countries, including people in Canada, the UK, United Arab Emirates, and worked to get similar surveillance of those victims, all critics of Iran, who fled the country to get away from the terror regime. In some instances, they've been successful. In 2020, they lured one Iranian critic out of America, arrested her abroad, and that person remains in an Iranian prison. Another dissident was lured out of France, captured abroad, brought back to Iran, and executed. This is what they do. And as par for the course, Iran's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, when the arrest of my client and the charging of the four Iranian intelligence officers was done, Iran's Ministry of Foreign Affairs denied any involvement, calling the accusations baseless and ridiculous. And that's according to their semi-official Iranian state media. That's the go-to line for Muslim terrorists when they're caught with overwhelming proof against them. Texts, emails, Google searches, 
cash deposits, cash transfers. Miss Alinejad, the dissident, also has a relative who was arrested in Iran and given an eight-year sentence solely to punish her. That's why they did it to her. And there was an article in the New York Times a few weeks ago detailing how regressive regimes like Iran and China, they use private investigators in New York to locate dissidents, critics of their governments, for kidnapping or worse. Just like my client, the private investigators are not told what they're getting themselves involved in. Now, let me give you some background. Why is Iran's government so hot to stifle any criticism of its repressive, brutal Islamist government? Because they are desperately trying to hold on to power, and they need to crush any vocal and even physical dissent, people in the streets. The people of Iran are presently, today, as I speak, protesting in the streets. The protest started in September of this year due to the country's morality police. If you can imagine, this Muslim terror state has a morality police. They drive around looking for people that are not dressed modestly enough according to what they believe Islam tells them to do. They arrested a 22-year-old woman for not wearing her head covering tight enough and for the horrible, unforgivable crime of wearing skinny jeans. She was killed in prison. Her family said she was beaten and her head was struck several times, according to the autopsy. The government and police have denied the accusations, claiming that she died due to an underlying disease. Yes, many 22-year-old healthy women die from an underlying disease. Makes no sense. The criticism by people who fled Iran has been going on for years. In the case that I'm involved in, the government of Iran tried to kidnap Ms. Alinejad starting in 2020. These protests for freedom, they've resulted in the Iranian security forces firing live ammunition into crowds in Iran, killing hundreds of people and dozens of children. You don't hear much about this, do you? No. The liberal press in America, not very interested in it. The critics of Iran who live abroad, the protesters in the streets of Iran, they're risking their lives against real bullets. These are the true heroes. This is not Antifa burning down stores and police stations. This is not Black Lives Matter painting slogans on the street and extorting and stealing money from white corporations, terrified that they'd be branded racist. These are Iranian people who want the most basic of freedoms, and they're being cut down like dogs in the street. This is what real courage looks like. And the world watches silently, barely saying a word. These types of protests have occurred over the years in Iran, and certainly occurred when Barack Obama was in power in America when he was president. He did nothing to help the protesters always afraid that any criticism would prevent him from appeasing Iran and accomplishing his most important goal, a deal with the Iranian terror leaders regarding their nuclear program, which only would have delayed and not ended their nuclear aspirations anyway. It's amazing in a way, and I I digress, I digress. It's amazing in a way that for a president who is black, who loves Muslims so much, he did almost nothing to help blacks. Trump, of all people, an idiot, 
did a huge service to blacks with his criminal justice reform, which has shortened the federal sentences for so many blacks in prison. Obama did nothing to help repressed Muslims. Certainly his actions didn't do a thing to help the Muslims in Iran that were being so badly oppressed and killed. And Trump, as we know, forged peace between Israel and some Muslim countries through the Abraham Accords. These accords surely help Muslim countries, uh, help the lives of Muslims living in these countries as they're now enjoying the fruits of uh, new trade with Israel. They can travel to Israel. Obama did nothing of the sort, and if anything, caused caused more misery to the Palestinians as he made no effort to, to bring them to heal to try to stop their terrorism, to bring them to the negotiating table. It just encouraged them to commit more violence, more terrorism, which of course then triggered Israel to respond and kill the terrorists. So there's your background. And now I'm going to give you my background on these issues and how I got involved in this case and why this case is so important to me. But first I want to explain something. I thought about this. Now, Telling all of this information, the story about this case, the background, my background, my youth, which I'll get into a minute, which includes my exposure at first to Iran's terror regime, it's a story that needs to capture your attention. If you're bored, you won't listen. It's no different than making a summation in a trial. I have to weave a lot of information together to make the story understandable, to make it convincing, to make it compelling. And it's not so easy all the time. In trials, you're dealing sometimes with three months of evidence, but you have to have a gut sense as a defense lawyer as to what is interesting and what isn't. To people, you don't even know. You have to weave in all these necessary facts. You have to add law in, but you need to connect with your audience, the jury, the most. The jury has to like you. They have to be engaged. They have to be moved, and that's what I'm doing on this podcast too, or at least I hope I'm doing. I don't spend a fraction of the time on a podcast as I do on a summation, but the instincts required to make a compelling podcast are the same needed to make a compelling summation. You must capture your audience quickly with humor, with excitement. You need to get them over to your side and away from your opponent's side, which isn't so easy all the time when there's so much evidence against your client. Now, my earliest memory of Iran, and I put down some notes because I really had to dig deep. It was probably in 1977 or 78. I was 12 years old, and I was hearing rumblings of the Shah of Iran having problems due to riots and protests in the street. What did I know of Iran? I knew nothing of Iran. I knew that the Shah was an ally of America. Iran, from my memory, was a a Western-influenced country without any hint of radical Islam. Back then as a kid, I recall. I do recall that the Shah was an authoritarian figure and that Iran was not a democracy. And that's how it was uh, with Muslim countries. There was no democracies. They just wanted to keep, I guess what they believed, the very wild populations in check. Or maybe they just were dictators and they wanted all the power. I was a kid. I didn't know. I didn't really understand Iran or was really interested in Iran or anything in the Middle East. I was aware of Israel as I had relatives who lived there who had settled there after the Holocaust. And I was certainly aware of the Arabs who had started wars against Israel, the Yom Kippur War in 1973. I was eight years old. I was too young to remember the Six-Day War in which Israel whipped all of its terrorist Arab neighbors in six days. 
I only knew about that afterwards. But I had heard that the Shah was having trouble with Islamist protesters who wanted to bring Iran back to the Stone Age. They wanted to cover women. The Ayatollah Khomeini and my earliest memories, my earliest memories, think back if you're a person of a certain age. He, he was not thought to be a murderous religious lunatic that he later ended up being at first. Instead, he preached peace, the usual bullshit. We now know that a Muslim cleric preaches before he seeks to cut your head off. His peaceful nature quickly changed as there were millions of Iranians in the street, many young people screaming, Allah Akbar, God is great, trying to overthrow the Shah. Looking back, naturally, uh, Jimmy Carter was in the White House and his band of morons believed in the Ayatollah and abandoned the Shah. They believed that the Ayatollah was a peaceful religious figure. I was too young to understand the politics. I was too young. There was no internet either. I just saw Jimmy Carter as some peanut farmer from Georgia with giant teeth. That's all I knew. I didn't realize back then how utterly incompetent and cowardly he was and what a sucker he was for Muslim terrorists, and he still is today. It was a faraway place, Iran, and if Iranians wanted to cover up and become cavemen, the fuck did I care? I felt it was nothing that could impact me. So why would I really pay attention to it? All that changed in October of 1979. I was 14 years old. The Shah had left Iran. He'd been forced out in January of that year. The Ayatollah had, been, had come back, been installed as the leader of Iran. America still held out hope it could work with him, if you can believe. And I mean, Jimmy Carter, naturally. In October of 1979, 52 American diplomats were held hostage in Iran after Iranians, young Iranians, stormed the American embassy there. It was awful being an American and seeing these crazed Islamic terrorists abusing our diplomats and the people that worked inside the embassy. They were paraded in public with blindfolds on. The embassy was torn apart. The reason the Iranians gave for taking the hostages, as I recall, and I remember this, was that America would not send back the Shah to Iran to be tried by a sham uh, uh, tribunal and executed. The Shah had come to America for cancer treatment, and he was dying. And in fact, he died a few months later. As a kid, I can tell you that the country was angry, really angry. We felt powerless watching these monkeys abusing our diplomats. Did we fully understand the Iranian frustration with America's support of the Shah? It wasn't exactly a caring leader of the Iranian people. Of course, we didn't. We didn't know. We didn't know that they may have had some legitimate beefs with America. There was so much we didn't understand as kids. And I'm thinking about the people that I hung out with, because I certainly wasn't hanging out with adults. What we did understand was the abuse that the Iranians were heaping on our people, and they kept them hostage for 444 days. What we did understand was how Iran was shitting on America. All of the kids were angry. I was 14 years old. And I remember talking about it with other kids in school. I was a freshman in high school. I was powerless. I remember I had a ski jacket. I wore it to school every day. It was blue, like kind of like not dark blue with red trim. And I had one of those knit hats that every kid in New Jersey wore back then. Sometimes they had a little round insignia of a football team, of your football team in the center at the top. It's, you slid it over your head, and the bottom part, 
You didn't pull it over your face. You folded it up like above your eyes. No pom-pom on top. And I had two buttons on it that I had bought in Spencer Gifts. It was a novelty chain store. I don't even know if they're still around today. They used to sell fake vomit and fake dog poop. You know that rubber poop? Like gags, things like that. Cans of soda with fake spilled soda that was attached. Posters, black lights, T-shirts, stuff like that. And the two buttons that I found that I put on my hat, one was black and in white block letters it said, all capitals, BOMB IRAN. The other was brown and in white block letters, all caps, FART ON IRAN. We were pissed, the kids, the kids from New Jersey. This third world prehistoric Muslim terror country was holding our people hostage, parading them around, screaming death to America, and we couldn't do a damn thing to stop it. The anger and resentment grew, I remember, over those 444 days, and it culminated in Jimmy Carter's failed effort to rescue the hostages. And that occurred six months after they were kept. We had six helicopters over there to try to rescue them. Two of them failed. One of them collided with a transport plane, and eight Americans were killed. It was just so much humiliation. On top of the humiliation of our hostages being kept by these savages, and Carter just looked more pathetic. The hostage crisis was largely the reason that Carter lost his re-election attempt to Ronald Reagan. That is a fact. Look it up if you don't believe me. It was awful for Carter. He just looked so weak. He looked like he was just getting pushed around by these Iranian terrorists. On the day that Reagan was sworn into office, the hostages were released. The Iranians hated Carter so much that they waited until that day to release the hostages with Carter just out of office. Now, we celebrated the release. All of America did. But again, there was no internet. There was no sleuthing. It was just what you read in the newspaper. And while we celebrated... We believe that it was because a tougher-talking Ronald Reagan was the reason for the hostages being released, that they knew Iran that, you know, a cowboy was in the White House and he was going to bomb Iran if they didn't release the hostages. Naturally, we didn't know that America unfroze like $8 billion of Iranian assets in exchange for the hostages' release. When the hostages came back to America, we learned that they were subjected to long periods of confinement, beatings, threats of of harm, and threats of execution by the Iranians. We hated Iran. All of us did. All the kids from that generation. We hated them then. We hated them forever. Maybe I hated them a little bit more. So as time passed, it's not like Iran became better global citizens as I got older. Beyond crushing the hopes and dreams of their own people, They began exporting their terrorism. Incredibly, uh, the world sat pretty much silently by while the Iranian terror leadership spread their murder and mayhem all over the globe. They fund Hezbollah in Lebanon. They provide them uh, all their weapons. Hezbollah entered Lebanon and killed its prime minister, took over that country, and they destroyed the country. The country is completely bankrupt. They have power uh, outages. Every single day, the country's been destroyed because Iranian terrorists have taken over the country. So not only do they terrorize their own people in Lebanon, but they terrorize Israel, their neighbor. They help their other neighbor, neighbor, Syrian leader Assad, kill his own people during that civil war. 
They're responsible for killing hundreds of Americans inside Lebanon. Iran also funds and arms Hamas and Islamic Jihad, terrorists that are in Gaza. Besides killing Israelis with their rockets aimed at civilians, they terrorize their own people. They've killed Americans. Iran also funds and arms the Houthi terrorists who have killed tens of thousands of people in Yemen. They use child soldiers. They've killed and tortured Americans. They also terrorize our other allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia. Iran has tried to overthrow governments throughout the Middle East. In 2018, Albania, the Iranian ambassador, was expelled. In 2015, in Bahrain, they discovered a large bomb-making factory and arrested arrested a number of Iranian terrorists. They kicked out the Iranian ambassador. Why? Due to Iran's attempts to overthrow that government. Later on, Bahrain dismantled an Iranian terror cell that was linked to Hezbollah. They want to take over all their neighbors. They want their terrorism to spread long and far in the Middle East. In 2012... India concluded that Iranian terrorists were responsible for a bomb attack which targeted an Israeli diplomat in India. It ended up wounding one embassy staff member and two bystanders. India figured out that Iran had planned other attacks on Israeli targets around the world as well. Now, Iran through Hezbollah, they bombed the Israeli embassy in Argentina in 1992. They killed 29 people. In 1994, Hezbollah bombed the Jewish community center in Argentina, killing 85 people just because they're Jews and Iran and their terror proxies hate Jews. In 1994, they blew up a plane in Panama. They killed 21 people, 12 of them Jews. In 1996, they bombed a housing complex in Saudi Arabia. They killed 19 members of our Air Force. Ours, America's. Iran arms terrorists in Iraq. They've tried to kill American and Westerners in Kenya. They've tried to kill Israeli diplomats in Thailand. This is recently. They tried to blow up a rally in Paris, a rally for Iranian dissidents protesting the Iranian terror regime. They tried to kill John Bolton and Mike Pompeo inside America. They've partnered with Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in terror activities. In 2011, they tried to assassinate the Saudi Arabian ambassador to the U.S. inside a restaurant in Washington, D.C., and then tried to bomb the Israeli and Saudi embassies in D.C., inside America. They've helped Iraq insurgents kill and maim countless thousands of Americans in the war in Iraq. That's the truth. All the while, they act like it's all America's fault that they need to commit this terrorism all over the world. They fill up their stadiums with crazed religious lunatics, with their eyes bulging, with their tongues hanging out. They're walking on American flags, Israeli flags, to get into restaurants, into schools. They brainwash their kids. They go into these stadiums and they're screaming, Marg Bar Amrika. That means death to America. What's always been maddening to me is that we, the free world, not just America, we haven't simply invaded or bombed them away. We just take their terrorism. Yes, we we sanction them. We deal with them in a proportionate manner, we think. But we accept their animalistic, savage behavior. We should be using our lopsided power difference between us and them and destroy them once and for all. We should have done it when they took our hostages, but we didn't. 
We should have immediately destroyed all of their Navy, whatever their shitty Navy is. Every time they kill an American, we need to blow up some of their shit. We should have done it when they funded the first terror proxy which killed Americans. We should have done it during the Iraq War when they were killing and maiming Americans, but we didn't. So then the status quo takes root and both sides adhere to it. They can act like insane Muslim terrorists. They don't give a shit, have any morality over anything they do. So they get away with all kinds of insane things. And we, the civilized part of the world, we can't respond the same way. And we should. For example, they target children in Israel. And when they kill them, they celebrate. They hand out candy to children. That's what the Iranian paid terrorists do. If Israel did the reverse, the world would shun Israel completely and immediately. But because the Iranians and their terror proxies are such savage Muslim terrorists, the world simply shrugs and says, eh, we know who they are. We know what they are. They're not changing. Just deal with it. That's wrong. The double standard is wrong. It's racism of low expectations. Which is why when Israel is attacked by Iran's proxies from the south, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and from the north, Hezbollah. They don't nuke Iran, and they should have years ago. And now, as we know, they've been trying to develop a nuclear bomb themselves, and we're desperately attempting to appease them by giving them all sorts of sanctions relief to stall their, their nuclear program, not even to eliminate it. So I've always hated the Iranian terror regime and have never been quiet about it. They're the worst terrorists on the planet. Without them, the Middle East might actually be peaceful, for real. You cut off the head. Nearly every dispute in the Middle East involves Iran or its terror proxies. You cut off the head in Tehran. You cut out that regime. And there can actually be peace and prosperity in the world's worst neighborhood. True story. This is a true story. I started doing radio, talk radio in New York City in early 2006 after I cross-examined the New York radio host, the head of the vigilante group, the Guardian Angels, Curtis Sliwa. He was in the, during the John Gotti Jr. trial. Gotti was accused of having his thugs rough up and ultimately shoot Curtis back in the 90s in the back of a cab, all for the reason of criticizing John Gotti Jr.'s father, John Gotti Sr., on the radio. I destroyed Curtis uh, during this cross-examination. I mean, absolutely humiliated and obliterated him. And the producer of Curtis's radio show thought it would be an interesting pairing if I did radio with Curtis afterward. And I did it for years. I still do a weekly radio interview on WOR Radio in New York City. It's online as well every Monday morning at 7.05 a.m. But for years, I did sometimes five hours a day for five to 15 days a month on WABC in New York. And then in 2010, I had my own two-hour radio show on a Saturday. And then from 2011 to 2013, I was on two hours a day during the afternoon drive time from 5 to 7 p.m. And it was a distraction from the work I was doing. It was not easy getting the work done. I had to do all this legal work during the day, and then I'd walk in, usually cold, into a radio program, but I loved it. I, I was good at it, mainly because I didn't care if anyone at the station got pissed at me if I said something too outrageous. I was making like 
minor money from it and didn't need the radio job at all, unlike everyone that actually works in radio and it's their only income. So they're terrified of their own shadows and they're always pulling their punches, afraid to say what they really mean. I never did. I said whatever was on my mind. If you don't like it, fuck you, fire me. And they did. Now, I, I use the radio also because I am a flawed man, if you haven't noticed. I, I do have my flaws. I used it for revenge purposes. I mean, you're given that kind of platform. You got 50,000 watts of power for the world to hear. Naturally, I'm going to use it to abuse my enemies. How can you not? Come on. What other purpose could there be to be on radio if you have half a brain but to get revenge? So I'd go after anyone I had a personal beef with or anyone who I felt deserved a public beating. And I had such resources at my disposal. There's a New York City councilman named Charles Barron who just was open anti-Semitic, a black guy. Naturally, he's black. He hates Jews. Shocking. He was allowed to hate Jews with no repercussions because this is New York City. And I had Frank Morano. He was the producer of the radio show at, at, at my disposal. He now has his own really wonderful radio show on WABC called The Other Night of Midnight. It's on like in the middle of the night. It's ridiculous. They put him on in the middle of the night, and he should be on during the day instead of the slobs that they have on there. Anyway, regardless, I, I would get uh, Frank to, tr to track down Charles Barron and tell him we wanted to interview him. And naturally, Barron was thrilled because to get the publicity to uh, be on WABC, the most listened-to talk radio station in the world. Of course he wanted that publicity. So I got him on. I got him all comfortable. And then I beat the shit out of him on live radio. I did it to a fellow named Cyrus McGoldrick, too. He was a CARE. That's a Council on American-Islamic Relations. It's practically a terror group. I got him on. Frank tracked him down. And I had a really nice talk with him on the radio. He was a Christian convert to Islam, and he really hated Israel. Got him nice and comfortable, and then beat the shit out of him on the radio as well. Live radio. It's not like any of these people were used to debating a very skilled trial lawyer. It was fun. I enjoyed humiliating them. Sometimes I just make fun of people I hated. There was this tiny musician. I just remembered this uh, last night. The fuck is his name? He was really anti-Semitic. He was an Englishman. The band's name uh, was The Muse, The Muse, or something like that. I, I've never listened to his music because he was such a garbage person. I had to assume that his music sucked as well. I had spoken to him a few times online as we had some mutual friends. So I made fun of him on the radio. I made fun of his height. He was at the time engaged to, to Kate Hudson. And I made some immature comments about how flat-chested she was. Really immature shit because I am not above that. I am not. Whatever. The fuck was his name? Matthew Bellamy. That was his name. Just a real arrogant jackass whose only comeback to me online was how rich he was. Like that was going to buy him five inches of height or a personality. Now, on the radio, I just said what was ever on my mind. As I said, I, don't, I didn't care. And I'm going to give you another story. I was coming back from Brazil. This is November of 2007. And I'm handed the New York Times by the uh, flight attendant, the stewardess. I had spent a whirlwind two days meeting with uh, crazed, uh, this crazed Colombian narco-trafficker named Chupeta. It was in a prison in Brazil. He had just been caught. He had done all this uh, plastic surgery to avoid being caught. Like his 
chin, he had a chin implant in his cheeks. He just looked like a complete freak. Incredibly, the next time I'd see him after that November of 2007 meeting in jail was when he was testifying against my client, Chapo Guzman in Brooklyn, 11 years later. Now, I'm thumbing through the newspaper on this flight, and I come upon an article about Don Imus. He was the radio personality who was moving his show to WABC Radio because he had made racist and sexist remarks on another station, which is what every radio host does. But Imus, to his credit, at least had the balls to, to do it. Whatever was on his mind, he didn't care, even if it was bad. I was mentioned in the article. I had no idea that I was even in this article. I was mentioned as I was hosting radio shows on WABC at the time. And when discussing the Iraq war during a morning show, I was lamenting the fact that we had invaded Iraq and not Iran after 9-11. Here's the exact quote from the article. I'm reading it. In the slot Mr. Imus will fill on WABC, a substitute host, Jeffrey Lickman, lamented that we hadn't gone after the right psychotic Muslim fanatic animals, meaning Iran, but added that the United States could still bomb both Iranians and Iraqis. Quote, I'd send the biggest bomb possible that would kill the most people. All those people that show up in their stadiums with their eyes bulging and their tongues hanging out saying death to America... I drop a bomb the same size as that stadium. Anyway, 927, let's get the traffic and the weather. That was the quote in the New York Times. Real quote. So you can see Iran has always been on my mind. I've always had hate for the terror regime. Not the people. Since 1979. Back to the present. I hope I didn't lose you. I read about the arrest of Nilafor Bahadorafor, Nelly, as we call her, the Iranian woman who lives in California, and she was charged in Manhattan along with the four Iranian terrorists who live in Iran for her involvement in the case of the attempt to kidnap Masi Alinejad. When I saw it in the newspaper, when I saw it in the news, my ears perked up. I saw that she was the only one that was brought into custody, and she had nothing to do with the kidnapping attempt. It was very strange. And I thought to myself, if there ever was a case that I wanted to learn more about what the Iranian terrorists are doing, to see it from the inside, this was the case. It was perfect for me. I wanted so badly to represent her, to fight for her, as in my mind, she was a victim of the Iranian terror regime as well. Now, I had passions for these issues like no defense lawyer in New York City or anywhere could possibly have had. And I have more fight in me than anyone else does anyway, just regularly. So marrying these two passions of mine would be a godsend. But, you know, sometimes you don't get what you want. Just because a case is right for you doesn't mean that the client calls you. It just happens. There's been many cases I've watched angrily from the sidelines in silence as some other lawyer screws it up. And it should have been me not screwing it up and handling the case. Just because something is perfectly right for you does not mean that you get it. That's the tough part about being an adult. That's some reality. But then the phone rang, and it was someone calling on behalf of Nellie. That's her Americanized name again. They were looking for a top criminal lawyer in New York City to help her. I could not believe my luck. I quickly took on the case. For decades, I'd been waiting for this case. And I got to know her and she was exactly as I'd expected that she'd be. And I understood what had happened to her, why she had done what she did. 
and that the terror she was facing, even in America with so many thousands of miles away uh, from Iran, I knew everything that was happening because it was a passion of mine, not just the case, but the circumstances of, of people that fled Iran to get away from the terror regime. I could speak to the prosecutors about it, not just as a lawyer, but as someone who fully was immersed in their facts, in their culture, in the mindset of the terror regime over there. Now, I can't go into the details of what went on with the case other than to report that she pled guilty to some of the charges last week and that she's being sentenced in April. The story I told uh, you all, some of it will make its way to the judge in April. In short, she was manipulated by one of the Iranian intelligence officers who was charged, a family friend that she had since she was child. She was a child. She was targeted by them. She coerced, was coerced by them to send PayPal money to a private investigator hired by the terrorists to spy on this Brooklyn critic, Masi, the critic of the Iranian regime. And she also pled guilty to structuring, which means that she had received money over the years, cash money, and deposited into the bank in an effort to cause the banks not to file a currency transaction report, which means that you deposit money in less than $10,000 amounts. You've got more than 10000 and you deposit it in small, you break it down. Why? Because the $10,000 figure, when it's deposited, triggers reporting requirements. But as I said, she also pled guilty to helping the Iranian terrorists evade sanctions. Now, taking this case finally gave me the chance for the payback that I've wanted since I'm 14 years old, since 1979. I finally had my platform, a global platform to speak directly to the terrorists who kidnapped those 52 Americans back in 1979 and held them for 444 days, abusing them and humiliating them. I could speak directly to them. They're older now, just like I am. But to be able to speak to the people who've terrorized Israel and their proxies, to know that the Ayatollah would surely be reading my words as they would travel all over the globe. And let me tell you, the Iranian terrorists, they watch the media. That's how they know which dissidents to go after. To know that they were reading my words, my feelings about them, to finally cause them some pain in response. And I was quoted in the New York Times as follows. Quote, when Iran's terrorist leaders aren't slaughtering their own people, Lichtman said, they're traveling the globe trying to kill their critics, including the despicable manip manipulation of Ms. Bahadorafor by an old family friend. Instead of the world offering concessions, we should be finally ending this cancerous regime, he said. That was my quote online and in the paper version of the New York Times. Can you believe the New York Times printed that? Now, don't think for a second that Iran, by the way, is concerned about being caught trying to kill Americans on American soil. They know our government is too weak to extract the real payback they deserve, which would be the forceful elimination of their terror regime. Now, while this case was pending, law enforcement in New York uncovered a more recent plot 
to kill Nasi Alinejad. This past July, a man was arrested after he was found with a loaded AK-47 assault rifle outside her Brooklyn home. The man, a Muslim naturally, had been behaving suspiciously near the house for two days and was later stopped by a New York City police officer after failing to obey a stop sign. That's according to the federal criminal complaint in the district court in Manhattan. The police found a suitcase on the rear seat of his car contained the assault rifle with an obscured, that means an obliterated serial number. The rifle had a round in the chamber and a magazine attached with a second magazine and about 66 rounds of ammunition. He was spotted peering into her home, walking up to the door and looking inside. Following his arrest, police also recovered two license plates with different numbers and from states that are different than the Illinois license plate that was on his car. The man claimed he was just looking to rent the room in the neighborhood, which is why he was trying to open the door of her house. The car was borrowed, he claimed. He didn't know the gun was in the suitcase, he claimed. But he later told FBI agents that the AK-47 was his and that he had been in Brooklyn because he was looking for someone. And then he invoked his right to counsel. Listen, you want to do this work and you want to do it well, you can have no fear. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Apple Podcasts, you can find me. You can find me on Spotify, iHeartRadio, beyondthelegallimit.com. Send me email, send me feedback. I respond if you do, and everything you say matters to me. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.